Welcome to The Beat, a podcast series from the COPS office at the Department of Justice, featuring interviews with experts from a varied field of disciplines. The Beat provides law enforcement with the latest developments and trending topics in community policing. Hello, and welcome to The Beat. I'm Gilbert Moore, and today we'll be discussing the prevalence of heart disease among law enforcement officers, elements of the profession that place officers at greater risk for heart attack, and a few measures that you can take to mitigate these risks. Our guest today is someone who is well qualified to lead us through a discussion on these issues. I'll introduce him first as Dr. John Scheinberg, a board-certified cardiologist who has expertise in coronary disease detection and prevention before blockages of the heart become apparent. Dr. Scheinberg also wears several other hats. In addition to being a cardiologist, He's also a lieutenant with the Cedar Park Police Department in Texas. He's a reserve trooper with the Texas Department of Public Safety. He serves as a medical director for the Central Texas Regional SWAT Team, and he is a member of the Department of Justice's Officer Safety and Wellness Working Group. Lieutenant Scheinberg, welcome to the beat. Thanks for having me, Gil. Happy to be here. No worries. And I should tell everybody that we're recording this remotely. Dr. Scheinberg is in the field in Texas, and I am in Washington, D.C. So keep that in mind as you're listening. And, and to get started, Dr. Scheinberg, I just want to ask you one clarifying question. Tell us a little bit about your background, and, and specifically, how does one end up wearing scrubs in a law enforcement uniform at the same time? I don't wear them at the actual same time. <laughs> so I'll give you the background. So my first career was as a cop. So in 1989, I was a patrol officer up in Massachusetts. And after doing that for about a year or so, I decided, you know, when I give myself a shot at med school, went to medical school, spent 15 years in the military afterwards. And then when I got out and set up a practice in Austin, Texas, or I should say joined a practice in Austin, Texas, I missed the service. I missed giving back and I missed the camaraderie. So I decided to go back into policing. I ended up going back to the police academy, becoming a sworn officer again, and joined a local department. And over the last several years, worked my way up the chain and now try to rank a lieutenant. So I split my time. I work as a physician most of the time, and I work as a law enforcement officer part-time. Given that you have two very unique experiences, do I call you Dr. Scheinberg or Lieutenant Scheinberg? Which one? John is fine. Well, yeah, and that leads into the next question. Tell me, kind of having experience in two very unique professions, the medical profession and law enforcement, are there perspectives that you bring to your job on the law enforcement side that are informed by the work that you've done on the medical side of the house? You know, Gil, that's a great question, and I'll actually flip it the other direction. There are things that I bring from my police training into my medical training, and I can give you a very specific example because I've thought about this quite a bit, but interestingly, you're the first person who's ever asked about it. Physicians tend to have egos, and a lot of times when you have an ego, it's difficult to ask for help. And for example, I work in a cath lab, and there are a lot of physicians who are in the operating room or in a catheterization laboratory and they're doing procedures and they get into a situation in which they need help. They're over their head. They need some assistance. And a lot of times ego will prevent those doctors from asking for help. And my experience as a cop, I've learned to know when I'm in need of assistance, in need of backup, in need of help. So my 
take home from this merger of two professions is I know when to ask for help and I've learned to know where my limits are. And it sounds somewhat bizarre to say it, but that type of mentality has been incredibly helpful and insightful for me as a physician. You know, you have a situation in which there's a lot of similarities between the two groups, even though the jobs are completely different. You end up seeing people who are at their most vulnerable. There's a situation in which people look to you for an answer. You have to maintain your poise and calm in situations that are catastrophic or rapidly spiraling out of control. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of some of the, you know, not actually the work, of course, but in terms of the experiences those individuals go through, emotionally, physically exhausting and rewarding at the same time. So I have been able to utilize skill sets that I learned in both professions to complement the other one. You know, one thing that I would imagine is unique to law enforcement, and that's what I said at the beginning of discussion, and that is that law enforcement has one of the poorest cardiovascular disease health profiles of any occupation. I would imagine that's different for doctors and people in the medical profession. Why is it that law enforcement officers are at such an increased risk for cardiovascular disease? So let me first answer your question by sort of defining what that risk is. Law enforcement officers have lower life expectancies in general than the general population. We know police officers currently live on average 22 years less than their civilian counterparts. We also know that heart disease is much more prevalent in the law enforcement world. We see between the ages of 55 and 59, if you're a civilian, your chance of dying from a cardiac event, a heart attack, during that time is about 1.5%. But if you're a cop, the chance of dying from a heart attack is about 56%, so a tremendously increased risk. We see heart attacks younger in law enforcement, so the average age of a cop with a heart attack is 49. The average age of a civilian with a heart attack is 65. And about 40% of heart attacks occur at the age of 45 in the law enforcement world, where in civilians it's only about 7%. So we see heart attacks more frequently and at younger ages. Of course, the question is why, and the bottom line answer is we don't really know. It's likely a perfect storm. It's a combination of several different things. When this data is initially presented to a group of people, the first thing that comes to their minds, oh, it's stress. Police officers are under more stress. And I'll tell you, it's not necessarily the stress amount. Everybody is under stress. I see patients every day who are having marital problems or financial problems. Everyone's kids are into things they shouldn't be, and stress patterns are universal. But law enforcement has a very unique stress pattern. It's a pattern which is what we call it's 98, 97% boredom, and then 2 to 3% of sheer terror. So you have a situation in which the stress patterns are rapidly changing, and you add that to a population that experiences shift work, a population that is sedentary, a population that leads a diet of convenience. And although it's never been defined, my speculation is that there's also an increased genetic risk in this population because we know heart disease has a significant genetic component associated with it. And there's got to be something in law enforcement that drives a certain group of people into it that also carry a risk for coronary disease. So it's a combination of all of these things, but irrespective of what causes it, at the end of the day, we're left with cops that die younger and have more frequent heart attacks than their civilian counterparts. You used a couple of terms, and I just want to make sure that we're clear. Because personally, I don't necessarily know the differences of 
some of the terms. You talk about coronary disease, and I think I might have mentioned cardiovascular disease, and then we talked about a heart attack. In a layman's terms, what are they, what are the differences, or is there a catch-all that we can use so we can focus our discussion? So I use those terms interchangeably. So coronary disease, heart attack, cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular event, we're all talking about the abrupt blockage of blood flow in an artery, basically a heart attack. So when the arteries get blocked, a heart attack is the end result. Is that the takeaway? Essentially. The pathophysiology behind it is a little bit more complex and how the artery blocks, but basically a heart attack, no matter what term you use to define it, is an artery of the heart that is clogged, therefore not getting the heart muscle enough blood. So if I'm, let's say, in the middle of my career, recognizing that the world is not going to change simply because I'm on the job and, you know, I'm starting to kind of gain some weight, starting to become a little bit more sedentary with age, what signs should I be looking for in terms of making sure that I don't become one of those statistics that you talked about? What can I do? So that's a great question. And so the question really is, what can we do to prevent this? So the problem is we don't know. And we have the technology and we have the knowledge to identify blockages in the arteries years before those blockages cause a problem, years before someone feels chest pain or years before someone ends up in the emergency room having a heart attack or needing a stent or bypass surgery. If we wait until you know, we waited too long. So this is not one of the things we use the analogy of, you don't want to wait till you have a toothache before you go to the dentist. So there has to be a proactive measure of involvement from multiple levels to prevent this from happening. And I would go and say, because the data that we have is so compelling that the executive leadership really has a moral and ethical obligation to keep this prevalence of disease lower. Because our job on the executive staff is to make sure our cops get home at the end of the day. So in the same way, we make sure our officers wear body armor or make sure they wear reflective vests when they do traffic stops. We have the same obligation to make sure our officers don't die of heart disease. If you look at the data from the officer down memorial page, heart attack comes into the number two or number three line of duty death every time it's calculated. However, that page does not count people who have heart attacks after they take off their uniform for the day. And it doesn't count all the heart attacks that don't kill people. Only 3 to 4% of the heart attacks are fatal. So we're talking about thousands of heart attacks that occur that don't meet the ODMP data point. So we have the ability to pick this up, like I said, early. So what we have to do is basically educate our executive leadership, the unions, and the individual officers and say, here's the testing that can be done rather easily, rather inexpensively, to identify the people who are at risk blockage formation. And once we identify that risk, we can implement a strategy to mitigate it. Okay. So there are a couple of things there. Number one, the testing. I think that's critically important for us to talk about and really why we're here today. But also this concept of executive leadership, right? So for years, there have been policies, directives that require officers to wear seatbelts, right? And so if you look at the Law Enforcement Memorial Fund's website, I think the number one cause of officer fatalities is car accidents. And I would imagine a significant amount is because people or officers are not, in fact, wearing seatbelts. So if we kind of take that dynamic and we apply it to cardiovascular health, what kinds of things can an agency or executive leadership do to ensure 
that officers are eating properly, sleeping more consistently, maybe getting the necessary exercise or doing those things that are going to help offset or eliminate the presence of heart disease. The presence of heart disease is a component of a larger wellness initiative. And wellness is really becoming the tip of the spear throughout the conversation in policing at the moment. It's really taken a forefront. We're finally now coming to grasp with the concept, like we said, heart attacks are more prevalent. We're coming to grasp the idea that police officers have depression, higher divorce rates. We see officers are two or three times more likely to kill themselves than to be killed in the line of duty. We see substance abuse rates. So the concept is this overlying wellness program, which is what has to be adopted by executive leadership and command staff. And no matter what agency or no matter what governing body looks at a wellness program, it always comes down to five different components. And they go by different names and different agencies title them differently. But ultimately, there's five components which make the national conversation for wellness. One is mental health. One is fitness. The next is obesity and nutrition. I separate those two because we do see people who are fit and overweight, and we do see people who are of normal weight who are not fit. So even though fitness and nutrition overlap, they're not necessarily identical topics. They do carry some of the same components, but they're not identical. We also see cardiac screening as one of those components. And of course, the development of a tactical combat casualty care, an individual first aid kit deployment, the other fifth component. So basically, it's first aid or combat casualty care, cardiac screening, fitness, nutrition, and mental and emotional health. Those are the components. And there's several different ways to handle each one of these components. To answer your question a little bit more specifically, the executive leadership needs to focus on nutrition and weight loss, fitness and cardiac screening. So if I may, I'm going to address each one of these issues because the concept overlaps, but when you identify it in these three different items, it's a little bit easier to get our arms around. So in terms of nutrition, we have data that shows that law enforcement is one of the most obese professions. The data will tell us that nationally, about 45 plus percent of cops are clinically obese. However, I can tell you we've collected data on 3,500 law enforcement officers here in the state of Texas. The obesity rate is over 80%. And with the obesity rate comes hypertension, diabetes, musculoskeletal problems. So the obesity is a definitive medical issue. Then we have the fitness issue. And we have officers who are not fit. And officers who are not fit, there's no question that they're, number one, not as effective at their job. And number two, they place themselves their agency and their municipalities or city or state and increased liability. There's a lot of case law out there that shows that officers who are not fit are more likely to resort to use of deadly force when they have the potential opportunity to use less lethal means or go hands-on. And There's a lot of case law that shows that officers are being held liable if they're not able to meet a fitness standard. And then the third component is cardiac screening. And there's certain tests, which we'll talk about here in a moment, that an officer can do which can identify the early stages of blockage. In terms of nutrition and weight loss, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. They all have benefits and they all have downsides. You know, when you serve in the military, as I know you and I have, we have weight standards. We have a uniform policy that has weight restriction and you have to either use body fat measurement or waist circumference measurements to determine whether or not you meet that standard. So when it comes to obesity, there are several markers that can be used to determine whether an officer is at the best possible weight that he or she should be at. I'll give you a specific example. Texas, the DPF, the Department of Public Safety, just launched what they call a command presence profile. And the command presence says that if you are a male officer, 
you will have an abdominal waist circumference less than 40 inches. And if you're a female officer, you'll have an abdominal waist circumference less than 35 inches. Hugely controversial. There's actually a lawsuit now between the union and the Department of Public Safety. The unions will say, you can't tell me a police officer can't be a police officer if their abdominal circumference is 41 inches. But really quick, John, sorry to interrupt you. You said 49 inches was the standard that was implemented by the Texas Department of Public Safety? No, 40 inches for a male. Uh, but we have medical literature to support that there is an increased risk of cardiac disease, an increased risk of mortality or dying for people who have abdominal obesity. So it meets medical standards. So there is, from a nutrition weight loss standpoint, we know people who are overweight have an increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, and all the complications that are associated with it. But how do you enforce that? That's the first problem. The second issue is fitness. How do we define fitness? So we know that police officers who are fit live longer than police officers who are not fit. There's a lot of data to support. The more fit someone is, the more reduction they have in dying. If you exercise more than 2,000 calories per week, the mortality of that group is 18 per 10,000 people. But if you are under that, the mortality in that group is 64 per 10,000 people per year. So the reality is we know people who exercise typically live longer than people who don't. We know people who exercise in the law enforcement world are more effective at performing their job. How do you test for that? How do you encourage that? Well, in a training environment, it's very easy. You line everybody up at 6 a.m. and you go for a run. However, in all practicality, that's not something that can be done in a department level on a regular basis. So what we do is we set fitness standards. We say, okay, we have a fitness standard. It's either going to be an old-fashioned military physical fitness test, which includes a run, push-up, sit-ups, or chin-ups. It can be an agility course. In Texas, we've adopted the Concept 2 rower, which is a stationary rower, as a marker of fitness. And if you meet a standard, then you are considered fit. If you establish a standard like this, it has to be a standard that either has a benefit or a reward if you make it and or a punishment or a consequence if you don't. It's in carrot approach. So a lot of agencies here are using both of these. If you make the fitness standard, you get a medal. You know, as cops, we love shiny things and we get to wear a medal on our uniform because we meet our fitness standard. Some of the departments also will pay their individual officers. So there's several departments here in Central Texas that when their officers make their fitness standard, they will give them an extra 100 bucks a month in fitness pay, which is a nice little bonus to have. However, if you don't make the fitness standard, there's a consequence. There's a remediation. Is this something that is going to prevent that individual from working? So there's so many different ways of incentivizing and potentially pushing people to a non-critical duty assignment or a suspension or even dismissal if they're unable to make the physical fitness standards. And again, this is a tremendously cumbersome and difficult topic to discuss because it carries with it all the right-to-work legislation and the union complains about it, but these are the things that agencies are doing to keep their officers healthy and on the job. I was just going to ask if I could step in really quick just to keep this in the realm of practical. What does 2,000 calories of exercise look like? Is that three 30-minute workout per week? Is it one per week? What is 2,000 calories? It's basically five 30- to 40-minute exercise sessions per week aerobic exercise sessions per week. Aerobic, got it. So lifting weights is not necessarily it. I got to get my heart rate up, and generally speaking, I have to generate a sweat. Exactly. 
Now, that can be done with resistance training, with weight training, but it has to be brisk. It has to be circuit. It has to be CrossFit-type work, just going and getting on the bench press and then walking over to the leg machine and then walking over and doing some curls. That doesn't really manifest that. But the CrossFit's a tremendous exercise program, running, elliptical, biking. Quite frankly, what we recommend is our visuals rotate. They do some resistance and strength training. They do biking. They do rowing. They get on the elliptical machine. They get on the treadmill and they go for a run because the more you vary the exercise, the more successful you are completing the actual 2,000 calories. I can see right now that there are a lot of officers who are listening that are going to say, I'd love to be more active and to work out more. But the reality is with the shift that I'm on, with the personal family responsibilities I have, the only way I'm going to be able to work out more is it becomes a part of my job if I'm compensated for it, which is not a common thing. Are you aware of law enforcement agencies that are in fact covering or paying officers for time that they spend working out in the gym? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually happy to say that there are a lot of different departments here in Central Texas that will give their officers several hours a week of on-duty time to work out. It's very difficult to set a fitness standard and require participation in the standard if you don't let the officers have the opportunity to train to meet that standard. So there's some departments that don't, but if you're going to penalize officers and potentially reward them for meeting a standard, you have to be able to provide them the time to do it. But unfortunately, as you know, a lot of our departments were understaffed, were undermanned, and we just don't have the ability to give the officers the time to do it. There's a big disparity between the line officers who are patrol officers and the detectives or the command staff who have more flexible schedules and may not work the full 12-hour or 10-hour shift. But you're right, it is another controversial topic, but it's very relevant. And it is my personal belief that if a department is going to establish a fitness standard and hold officers accountable, that they really need to be able to provide the officers the time and the facility to train to meet that standard. We are talking with Dr. John Scheinberg, who is a board-certified cardiologist, and also he is a police lieutenant with the Cedar Park Police Department in Texas. You were talking about five specific aspects of officer wellness, nutrition and weight loss, fitness, which we just covered. And then next would be cardiac screening. Previously, you said that if we get to the point as individuals that we're looking for a sign or a symptom of cardiovascular disease, we're too late. If in fact that's the case, how am I going to know when I'm supposed to go get screening? Another great question. And here's what we recommend. So the screening modality, I'm going to try to describe what they look like and what they mean and how it works. What we have the ability to do and what we want our officers to do is to be able to undergo the test that will identify blockage in their very early stages before those blockages become symptomatic. In other words, before people feel anything. And in order to understand what happens, I've got to kind of give a little bit of science background here. When blockages form, they form inside the blood vessel wall. So people have an erroneous concept of blockages forming in the blood vessel-like scale in a pipe. It doesn't work that way. Blockages, when they occur inside the arteries of the heart, actually occur inside the wall of the artery. The artery wall becomes filled with plaque. Then the artery walls expand and the artery narrows. And then when someone has a heart attack, it's not an artery that just gradually narrows. In other words, goes from a blockage of 10%, 20%, 40%, 90%, 99%, and 100% in a heart attack. That's not what happens. When someone has a heart attack, there's some plaque in the artery. There's some blockage in that blood vessel wall. 
the blockage becomes highly inflamed. It takes decades, and eventually that blockage bursts, it ruptures. All the plaque, all the junk in the blood vessel wall spills out into the opening of the blood vessel, and that activates the clotting system, and the clot forms. The clot is what abruptly blocks the blood vessel. So in essence, when someone has a heart attack, they're going from an artery that's not obstructive abruptly to an artery that's 100% obstructive. That's a heart attack. So the questions really are, how can we pick up that early plaque in the artery before it were to rupture? There's two things we look for. When plaque forms in the arteries of the heart, that artery can become calcified. In other words, little flecks of calcium will occur inside that blood vessel wall. Those flecks of calcium can be picked up on a low-cost, low-radiation CAT scan, which is called a coronary calcium score. It's a very inexpensive test. Matter of fact, most hospitals will offer this test even without a physician's prescription. The test in which the individual lies down on a CT scanner with his or her clothes on, the scan occurs over about a 45-second to a minute. The individual gets up and leaves. And the scan looks for these little flecks of calcium in the arteries of the heart. The scan is marketed under several different names. One is heart saver CT scan, otherwise known as coronary calcium score. But this scan, typically, I can tell you locally, and often those scans sell for about $75, so they're rather inexpensive. And if the scan is done and any calcifications are seen within the artery, we know that individual is in the early stages of blockage formation. Brilliant. So that's the first way of detecting. Most insurance plans do not cover this type of prevention. It's usually $75 cash. It varies from region to region. I've seen it upwards of $199. I've also seen it down in some places selling it for $50 during February, which is heart month, and it tends to be less uh, expensive at that time. But I can tell you in the central Texas region, we're paying $75 on average. And this is available at most hospitals. So I can't go to my doctor. I would have to go to a hospital to take advantage of that type of scan. It usually has to be very few physicians have their own CT scanners, and those who do may not have the coronary calcium software loaded on it. So the physicians could certainly point their patients into the right place to get it done, or it can be done by scouring the web for it. But these are called uh, coronary calcium scores, and again, there's more heart saver CT scans, and they're located in just about every major medical facility. Great, great. So you were saying? So that's the first component. The second component is to try to identify the inflammation that occurs before someone has a heart attack. And there are several markers that can be detected in a blood test. But the most accurate and effective marker is a marker which is called phospholipase A2, where it's abbreviated the letter L, the letter P is in PAPA, LP, dash, PLA2, PAPA Lima Alpha 2. And it is a blood test that will rise in the blood if that inflammation in the arteries is present. So what we recommend is that individuals undergo both of these tests, the simple blood test, LP, PLA2, and the calcium score. Because what we found by looking at 3,500 police officers is we see either an elevation of this calcification or an elevation of that inflammatory marker with very little overlap. In other words, when someone is forming blockages, they will either form blockages which are calcified or blockages which are inflamed. And if we're able to pick up either one of those, we can initiate a treatment plan, and we can stop it from progressing. So, John, I hate to interrupt you. I just want to make this crystal clear for your brothers and sisters in law enforcement. You're suggesting that if people want to guard against, ensure, know where they stand, or potentially identify whether or not they're at risk for heart disease, they would want to do two things. One is get a coronary calcium scan 
or figure out what their coronary calcium score is through receiving the scan. And the other is the LP-PLAT2 blood test. Is that right? LP-PLA2. Okay. It used to have a name. We used to call it the, quote, plaque test. Now it was actually spelled P-L-A-C test. However, the company that started that plaque test, that test has already gone generic. It's no longer a branded test. So just about every major lab will offer this type of testing, LP-PLA2, or otherwise known as phospholipase A2. And that test is a test which looks at, like I said, the inflammatory changes which occur inside the arteries of the heart. So that's three of the five aspects. What are the other two? The other two aspects of the wellness initiative? Yes. So the other two are tactical combat casualty care. And the Bureau of Justice Assistance and the COPS Office has done a tremendous job of making individual police officers and agencies aware of the need for stop-the-bleed kits. Just about every police officer out there is equipped with a belt-mounted tourniquet system and an individual first aid kit, which likely includes a quick clot gauze. So we have really made incredible strides in this regard. Combat casualty care is still something that some small departments are struggling with. Interestingly, if you go to these small departments, the officers identify the need for this type of equipment, and they have oftentimes cobbled together their own equipment. However, if it's not standardized, it's not as effective. And I'll give you an example. We are trained to use our tourniquets on ourselves. So if I come across a fellow officer who's injured, I want to use his or her tourniquet on that individual. The problem is, in a situation where I'm going to need to put a tourniquet on, it's typically a low-light situation. My hands are going to be wet either with blood or sweat. I'm going to have lost fine motor control because my adrenaline is pumping. If I can't find that individual's tourniquet, in other words, if it's not in a standard place, and if I do find it and if it's a tourniquet that I'm not familiar with, I have not trained on, my ability to successfully place that tourniquet on properly is substantially diminished. So just the same way we all carry the same duty weapon and we can throw magazines to each other if we need to, we're able to carry the same type of first aid equipment and use each other's equipment if we need to. So we have a standardized equipment with a standardized carry and a standardized training. So we've eliminated the fact of me coming up to another officer, not knowing where his or her equipment is, and if I do know where it is, not being able to apply it properly. So we made tremendous strides in this. I'll give you a quick anecdote. You know, I was asked to speak in England at the West Midlands Police Department regarding these wellness programs. And in England, they are actually undergoing a stabbing pandemic. There's a lack of firearms, but officers are getting stabbed. In fact, the vests that they wear are not bullet-resistant vests. They're stab-resistant vests. And when I explained our wellness initiatives, they couldn't believe that our officers carried tourniquets and first aid kits. And that was a sort of a light bulb. And they had to have officers who in the past had gotten stabbed or cut, and they'd had to go wander and knock on doors to try to find bandages until their armed response team or an EMS unit could get there. So not as well thought out in some of the other countries, but here, most of our officers, at least in Texas, are carrying standardized first aid kits. And then the fifth component is a mental health component. And like I said, there's no question that we do see an increased risk of mental health problems in law enforcement. You know, we have systems set up a lot of times to deal with the critical incidents. We have help available for the mass shootings, for the Walmart shooting, for the Pulse nightclub shooting. But a lot of times what we don't have available to our officers are preventative psychological help to handle all the micro traumas. We know as officers, we see domestic violence. 
regularly. We see collisions which cost family members' lives. We see dogs lit on fire. Horrible things. Child abuse. I mean, these things, even though they may not meet the definition of a critical incident, still take their toll on officers. And there has to be a peer support group or a mental health component that's available to the officers that is open, not punitive, and not frowned upon. So our officers can get the help that they need because without it, we're stuck with a higher divorce rate, suicide problems, substance abuse, and PTSD. So we have options. That's another field. I know one of my colleagues is doing a podcast on some of the mental health issues, but it's a real problem that requires real solutions as well. You've unpacked a lot, particularly for law enforcement executives. What are we missing, John? Is there anything else that is a critical part of making sure officers are in the best possible position to carry out their mission? I think we covered a lot of it. If I may just kind of put it in a little bit of a unique framework, how I see this. So when an officer graduates the academy and becomes a newly minted police officer, we have now this individual who's probably in the best physical shape of their life. They've also undergone psychological testing. So we know, at least to the best of our ability, that this individual is also psychologically sound. So we have this phenomenal raw material. We have an individual who is at the peak of their physical and mental health. And now we're going to take this person and we're going to expose them to this profession and tell them, okay, 25 years, you're going to have more heart attacks. You're going to have a higher risk of becoming obese and therefore have a higher risk of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, and musculoskeletal, so hip, knee, shoulder injuries. You're going to have a 75% chance of getting divorced. You're more likely to kill yourself. You're more likely to suffer from PTSD, and you're more likely to have a substance abuse problem. So we take this phenomenal raw product, and over the course of 20 years, we destroy it. So it is our obligation to take our ability to have these selfless men and women who not only put their lives on the line every day, but also are potentially having a shorter life expectancy with more medical problems. It is our moral and ethical responsibility to keep these officers healthy. So not only can they go home for their families at night, but they can enjoy their retirement for all the work that they've done. And through programs like the COPS Office and the Bureau of Justice Assistance and through the IACP that we're really organizing behind this. And I think this is a tremendously exciting time for us because we've identified the problems and we are the tip of the spear right now. We are now realizing that a healthy, fit police force is a more effective, happy, and longer living force. So I think we're doing a great job. The problems that we have are not defining the issue. The problems that we have are taking this information and distilling it down and putting it in the hands of the individual officers. And that's why I'm so happy and so grateful that you're taking the time and the cops offices is spearheading the ability to get this information out to the men and women who need it most because if it doesn't get distributed down to the line officers, the information is useless. So I'm so grateful for you and for your office for putting all this together. As a matter of fact, we truly appreciate you joining us today on The Beat. Thank you, Gil. Before we go, is there any resource or information that you would like to point our listeners toward so that they can learn a little bit more about the various topics we've discussed today? There is a nonprofit that was mentioned earlier. It's the Public Safety Cardiac Foundation. That website is www.publicsafetyheart.org. That website will have on it a host of information, both 
on PowerPoint and audio and video presentations regarding the risk of heart disease and law enforcement and recapping the steps that individuals can take to reduce the risk. That website is a 501c3 nonprofit entity and is a completely independent entity. Also, I would recommend that individuals simply look up. There is a bunch of podcasts and video casts that have been done through the COPS office that talk about some of these issues as well. The What's New in Blue series, which is available on YouTube, which has answered a lot of these questions as well. They're available for download as well. Yeah, you've all done a tremendous job of getting this information out, and the key is to make sure we direct as many people to look at this great work because it's incredibly helpful. Thank you, Lieutenant Scheinberg. We really do appreciate it. In fact, the COPS office is honored to be a supporter of the men and women of law enforcement. We have been speaking with John Scheinberg, a board-certified cardiologist and lieutenant with the Cedar Park Police Department in Texas, and you've been listening to The Beat. Take care. The Beat is brought to you by the United States Department of Justice's COPS Office. The COPS Office helps to keep our nation's communities safe by giving grants to law enforcement agencies, developing community policing publications, developing partnerships, and solving problems. If you have comments or suggestions, please email our response center at askcopsrc at usdoj.gov or check out our social media on Facebook www.facebook.com backslash DOJ cops on YouTube www.youtube.com backslash C backslash DOJ cops office or on Twitter at cops office. Our website is www.cops.usdoj.gov. The opinions contained herein are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the authors or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.